Section four of Aaron Trowell by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. He got to his assistance early in the morning some of the constables from St. George, and before the day was over he was joined by two or three of the warders from the convict establishment. There was with him also a friend or two, and thus a party was formed, numbering together ten or twelve persons. They were, of course, all armed, and therefore it might be thought that there would be but small chance for the wretched man if they should come upon his track. At first they all searched together, thinking from the tidings which had reached them that he must be near to them. But gradually they spread themselves along the rocks between St. George and the ferry, keeping watchmen on the road, so that he should not escape unnoticed into the island. Ten times during the day did Anastasia send from the cottage up to Morton, begging him to leave the search to others, and come down to her. But not for a moment would he lose the scent of his prey. What? Should it be said that she had been so treated, and that others had avenged her? He sent back to say that her father was with her now, and that he would come when his work was over, and in that job of work the life-blood of Aaron Trow was counted up. Towards evening they were all congregated on the road near to the spot at which the path turns off towards the cottage, when a voice was heard hallooing them from the summit of a hill which lies between the road and the sea on the side towards the ferry and presently a boy came running down to them full of news. "'Danny Lund has seen him,' said the boy. "'He has seen him plainly in among the rocks.' And then came Danny Lund himself, a small negro lad about fourteen years of age, who was known in those parts as the idlest, most dishonest, and most useless of his race. On this occasion, however, Danny Lund became important, and every one listened to him. He had seen, he said, a pair of eyes moving down in a cave of the rocks which he knew well. He had been in the cave often, he said, and could get there again. But not now, not while that pair of eyes was moving at the bottom of it. And so they all went up over the hill, Morton leading the way with hot haste. In his waistband he held a pistol, and his hand grasped a short iron bar with which he had armed himself. They ascended the top of the hill, and when there the open sea was before them on two sides, and on the third was the narrow creek over which the ferry passed. Immediately beneath their feet were the broken rocks, for on that side, towards the sea, the earth and grass of the hill descended but a little way towards the water. Down among the rocks they all went, silently, Caleb Morton leading the way, and Danny Lund directing him from behind. "'Mr. Morton,' said an elderly man from St. George, "'had you not better let the warders of the jail go first? He is a desperate man, and they will best understand his ways.' In answer to this Morton said nothing, but he would let no one put a foot before him. He still pressed forward among the rocks, and at last came to a spot from whence he might have sprung at one leap into the ocean. It was a broken cranny on the seashore, into which the sea beat, and surrounded on every side but the one by huge broken fragments of stone, which at first sight seemed as though they would have admitted of a path down among them to the water's edge, but which, when scanned more closely, were seen to be so large in size that no man could climb from one to another. It was a singularly romantic spot, but now well known to them all there, for they had visited it over and over again that morning. "'In there,' said Danny Lund, keeping well behind Morton's body, and pointing at the same time to a cavern high up among the rocks, but quite on the opposite side of the little inlet of the sea. The mouth of the cavern was not twenty yards from where they stood but at the first sight it seemed as though it must be impossible to reach it. The precipice on the brink of which they all now stood 
ran down sheer into the sea, and the fall from the mouth of the cavern on the other side was as steep. But Danny solved the mystery by pointing upwards, and showing them how he had been used to climb to a projecting rock over their heads, and from thence creep round by certain vantages of the stone till he was able to let himself down into the aperture. But now, at the present moment, he was unwilling to make essay of his prowess as a cragsman. He had, he said, been up on that projecting rock thrice, and there had seen the eyes moving in the cavern. He was quite sure of that fact, of the pair of eyes, and declined to ascend the rock again. Traces soon became visible to them by which they knew that someone had passed in and out of the cavern recently. The stone, when examined, bore those marks of friction which passage and repassage over it will always give. At the spot from whence the climber left the platform, and commenced his ascent, the side of the stone had been rubbed by the close friction of a man's body. A light boy like Danny Lund might find his way in and out without leaving such marks behind him, but no heavy man could do so. Thus before long they all were satisfied that Aaron Trow was in the cavern before them. Then there was a long consultation as to what they would do to carry on the hunt, and how they would drive the tiger from his lair. That he should not again come out except to fall into their hands was to all of them a matter of course. They would keep watch and ward there, though it might be for days and nights. But that was a process which did not satisfy Morton, and did not indeed well satisfy any of them. It was not only that they desired to inflict punishment on the miscreant in accordance with the law, but also that they did not desire that the miserable man should die in a hole like a starved dog, and that then they should go after him to take out his wretched skeleton. There was something in that idea so horrid in every way that all agreed that active steps must be taken. The warders of the prison felt that they would all be disgraced if they could not take their prisoner alive. Yet who would get round that perilous ledge in the face of such an adversary? A touch to any man while climbing there would send him headlong down among the wave, and then his fancy told to each what might be the nature of an embrace with such an animal as that. Driven to despair, hopeless of life, armed as they knew at any rate with a knife. If the first adventurous spirit would succeed in crawling round that ledge, what would be the reception which he might expect in the terrible depth of that cavern? They called to their prisoner, bidding him to come out, and telling him that they would fire in upon him if he did not show himself. But not a sound was heard. It was indeed possible that they should send their bullets to, perhaps, every corner of the cavern, and if so, in that way they might slaughter him. But even of this they were not sure. Who could tell that there might not be some protected nook in which he could lay secure? And who could tell when the man was struck, or whether he were wounded? "'I will get to him,' said Morton, speaking with a low dogged voice, and so saying he clambered up to the rock to which Danny Lund had pointed. Many voices at once attempted to restrain him, and one or two put their hands upon him to keep him back. But he was too quick for them and now stood upon the ledge of rock. "'Can you see him?' they asked below. "'I can see nothing within the cavern,' said Morton. "'Look down very hard, Massa,' said Danny. "'Very hard indeed, down in deep dark hole, and then see him big eyes moving.' Morton now crept along the ledge, or rather he was beginning to do so, having put forward his shoulders and arms to make a first step in advance from the spot on which he was resting when a hand was put forth from one corner of the cavern's mouth, a hand armed with a pistol, and a shot was fired. There could be no doubt now but that Danny Lund was right. 
and no doubt now as to the whereabouts of Aaron Trow. A hand was put forth, a pistol was fired, and Caleb Morton, still clinging to a corner of the rock, with both his arms, was seen to falter. "'He is wounded,' said one of the voices from below. And then they all expected to see him fall into the sea. But he did not fall, and after a moment or two he proceeded carefully to pick his steps along the ledge. The ball had touched him, grazing his cheek and cutting through the light whiskers that he wore, but he had not felt it, though the blow had nearly knocked him from his perch and then four or five shots were fired from the rocks into the mouth of the cavern. The man's arm had been seen, and indeed one or two declared that they had traced the dim outline of his figure, except the sharp crack of the bullets against the rock, and the echo of the gunpowder. There had been no groan as of a man wounded, no sound of a body falling, no voice wailing in despair. For a few seconds all was dark with the smoke of the gunpowder, and then the empty mouth of the cave was again yawning before their eyes. Morton was now near it, still cautiously creeping. The first danger to which he was exposed was this, that his enemy within the recess might push him down from the rocks with a touch. But on the other hand, there were three or four men ready to fire, the moment that a hand should be put forth, and then Morton could swim, was known to be a strong swimmer, whereas of Aaron Trow it was already declared by the prison jailers that he could not swim. Two of the warders had now followed Morton on the rocks so that in the event of his making good his entrance into the cavern, and holding his enemy at bay for a minute, he would be joined by aid. It was strange to see how those different men conducted themselves as they stood on the opposite platform watching the attack. The officers from the prison had no other thought but of their prisoner, and were intent on taking him alive or dead. To them it was little or nothing what became of Morton. It was their business to encounter peril, and they were ready to do so feeling, however, by no means sorry to have such a man as Morton in advance of them. Very little was said by them. They had their wits about them, and remembered that every word spoken for the guidance of their ally would be heard also by the escaped convict. Their prey was sure, sooner or later, and had not Morton been so eager in his pursuit they would have waited till some other plan had been devised of trapping him without danger. But the townsmen from St. George, of whom some dozen were now standing there, were quick and eager and loud in their counsels. "'Stay where you are, Mr. Morton. Stay a while, for the love of God, or he'll have you down. Now's your time, Caleb. In on him now, and you'll have him.' "'Close with him, Morton. Close with him at once. It's your only chance. There's four of us here. We'll fire on him, if he as much as shows a limb.' All of which words, as they were heard by that poor wretch within, must have sounded to him as the barking of a pack of hounds, thirsting for his blood. For him, at any rate, there was no longer any hope in this world. My reader, when chance has taken you into the hunting field, has it ever been your lot to sit by on horseback, and watch the digging out of a fox? The operation is not an uncommon one, and in some countries it is held to be in accordance with the rules of fair sport. For myself, I think that when the brute has so far saved himself, he should be entitled to the benefit of his cunning. But I will not now discuss the propriety or impropriety of that practice in venery. I can never, however, watch the doing of that work without thinking much of the agonizing struggles of the poor beast whose last refuge is being torn from over his head. There he lies within a few yards of his arch-enemy, the huntsman. The thick breath of the hounds make hot the air within his hole 
the sound of their voices is close upon his ears his breast is nearly bursting with the violence of that effort which at last has brought him to his retreat and then pickaxe and mattock are plied above his head and nearer and more near to him press his foes his double foes human and canine till at last a huge hand grasps him and he is dragged forth among his enemies almost as soon as his eyes have seen the light the eager noses of a dozen hounds have moistened themselves in his entrails ah me i know that he is vermin the vermin after whom i have been risking my neck with a bold ambition that i might ultimately witness his death struggles but nevertheless i would fain have saved him that last half hour of gradually diminished hope end of section four